I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Ah, and some people like to undignify others. Many of us remember in 2015 when Donald Trump said these words about Mexican immigrants. Quote, they're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists. The conventional wisdom is that that was a shocking aberration. After all, America's a welcoming country. All of us, all of us are descended from immigrants. Trump's words went directly, of course, against the words on the Statue of Liberty by Emma Lazarus, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. That's always been one of the justifiably proudest attributes of our 244-year-long history as a country. We have been known around the world as a beacon of freedom for those suffering under repressive governments, living in fear and desperate poverty and dangerous situations. The Trump assault on refugees was just Something shocking out of the blue. Well, unfortunately, no, it wasn't. There is some significant precedent for that. Building a massive wall to keep the undesirable ideas and people out is new. But the old way was to lock them in cold jails and deport great masses of immigrants and undesirables. The technology has changed, but the impetus remains the same as it was almost exactly 100 years ago. Protecting white Protestant male ownership and control of America applied then as well as now. Some of the names in the new and a new article in The New Yorker by acclaimed author Adam Hochschild are familiar. Woodrow Wilson, J. Edgar Hoover, but others are virtually unknown, like the heroist heroic Louis F. Post, whom I had never heard of. The piece is titled, When America Tried to Deport Its Radicals, and the parallels are indeed disturbing, yet offer a glimpse of hope for a return to normalcy, a phrase that came from the aftermath of this anti-immigrant, clearly racist time. Adam Hochschild, thanks so much for being back with us on Keeping Democracy Live. It's good to be with you, Bert. Adam Hochschild is an American author, journalist, historian, and lecturer. His best-known works include King Leopold's Ghost, from 1998, to End All Wars, The Story of Loyalty and Rebellion, 1914 to 1918, Bury the Chains, The Mirror at Midnight, The Unquiet Ghost, and Spain and Our Hearts, about one of my favorite subjects, the Spanish Civil War. Well, again, thanks for being with us. When we think of Ellis Island, we think of a legendary nearly sacred point of entry where immigrants at last reach their destination, entering the gateway to freedom, America at last. But almost exactly 100 years ago, in December 1919, as you write, Ellis Island took on quite another rather ugly role, which is virtually unknown today. What did it become, and in what ways is what happened there echoed in Trump's anti-immigrant policies? 
Well, let's roll the clock back uh, 100 years to the United States as it was in 1919. It was a very stormy time, and I actually think that um, if the world is not underwater several decades from now and there are still historians being able to look back at American history, uh, they're going to see that era, 1917 to 1920, as the time when American democracy came closest to really losing its soul. Um, The country was roiled by a huge wave of strikes. Uh, There were millions of returning veterans from the First World War who were competing for jobs. Uh, Many race riots broke out between black veterans and and white veterans. And, of course, the cops always arrested and punished the the blacks and not the whites. Uh, And there was a mania for uh, stopping immigration and for deporting uh, immigrants. Uh, The country, as you mentioned, uh, Bert, has long been ruled by a, you know, a a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant elite. And uh, these were the folks who had run this part of the world really since colonial days. But starting around 1890, the waves of immigrants coming through Ellis Island and, and other ports to the United States were mainly not from places like Britain and Germany. They were from Italy, especially southern Italy. Uh, they were from Eastern Europe. They were from Russia, and a large percentage of them were Jewish. And those who weren't Jewish were not Protestant. They were Catholic. They were Eastern Orthodox. So this very much riled up the American establishment at the time, Uh, Many people got swept up in the movement for eugenics. Uh, People like Theodore Roosevelt, for example, urged American uh, women of good stock, meaning Anglo-Saxon Protestant types, to have, you know, four or five, six children doing their their duty to the race, as he put it, Mm. so that uh, the old stock Americans wouldn't get outnumbered by all these unwashed newcomers. Uh, who also spoke a bab- babble of languages uh, other than English and were very often poor, and that's why they came here, to try to make a better life for themselves. So there was a lot of anti-immigrant feeling in the war, yeah, sorry, in the air, and it was compounded by an anti-radical hysteria, because throughout 1919, the country had seen the most intense wave of strikes in its history. One out of every five American workers walked off the job at some point. And the authorities were terrified that the Russian Revolution, which had just happened, you know, the Bolsheviks had seized power in Russia in November 1917, would spread to the United States and would spread to other countries. So these things combined into a push to deport people, well, who could be deported? Who mm. were the targets? They were radicals, socialists, communists, anarchists, who were here but were not American citizens. A lot of people in that huge wave of immigrants coming here starting in the late 1880s had never bothered to get themselves naturalized as American citizens. If you didn't speak English well, the process could be intimidating. Oh, yeah. And in those years, there didn't seem to be a reason to do it, because the country seemed to be welcoming newcomers. So the authorities, primarily the Justice Department, 
uh, and a bright, young, fast-rising guy in the Justice Department named J. Edgar Hoover, who was then just 24 years old, thought, all right, what we need to do is identify radicals and identify radicals who uh, never got officially naturalized as American citizens. And if we roll back the clock, uh, <coughs> you know, exactly 100 years to the end of 1919, yes. Uh, at that moment, there were 249 such people imprisoned on Ellis Island, uh, about to be deported from the United States. These were anarchists, socialists, uh, <coughs> communists, uh, many of them Jewish uh, or Italian, uh, probably mostly Jewish. Uh, and they were people who had never become officially American citizens, or in one notable case, were U.S. citizens, had U.S. citizenship and then lost it. That case was the famous uh, anarchist and feminist uh, Emma Goldman, who had become a U.S. citizen many years previously by marrying a naturalized American citizen. But then he lost his citizenship because it was deemed that he'd falsified something on his application, and so she lost her citizenship as well. So here is this woman who'd been in the United States for 34 years, yes. most of her life yes. at that point, had discovered her political voice here, had found a wide audience here, and she was one of this group of 249 people on Ellis Island who were slated to be deported from the country. Wow. 34 years, and we've all heard, if we're paying any attention at all, about so many people who have been in America, the DACA, the you know, people who came here as children and had no will one way or the other, who have lived there most of their lives. Some actually have been deported for lacking paperwork right. or something like that. So there's, you know, there's precedent for this, which is, you know, uh, kind of scary that uh, Trump is not the first to, to do this kind of thing. And as you talked about how there was fear, and fear is a powerful instrument for sure, of these others, these dark, swarthy others taking over America. Boy, do I hear an echo of that now. Yeah, that is, that is really true. And just to follow through on what happened yes. at Ellis Island that day, a couple days before Christmas in 1919, the ship was ready to... Uh, take these 249 people out of the country to send them to Russia, essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, but the ship couldn't dock at Ellis Island. It was docked in Brooklyn. And so a <clears throat> barge pushed by a tugboat in the middle of the night transported the 249 people from Ellis Island to this ship. And this mass deportation, the sort of first mass deportation of radicals, uh, in 20th century America, was so important to the government that J. Edgar Hoover led a delegation from Washington to personally oversee it, and they rode on the tugboat in the middle of the night from Ellis Island to the dock in Brooklyn. In that delegation was the head of the uh, Bureau of Investigation, the predecessor of the FBI, a uh, former New York City uh, police detective and uh, crime novel writer named William J. Flynn, uh, and several members of Congress, including a particularly unpleasant fellow, Albert Johnson from Washington right. State, who later 
couple years later would craft the 1924 immigration bill, which bore his name, and that was the bill that really slammed the door on immigrants coming to this this country. So this group of uh, uh, Washington dignitaries rode with the immigrants from Ellis Island to the um, uh, the dock in Brooklyn where their ship was docked, and in the middle of the night, in the kitchen of the tugboat, uh, Hoover had an exchange with Emma Goldman. Yeah. And the con- one of the congressmen who was with them uh, wrote it down, and I'll read you what they said. Hoover asked her, haven't I give you, given you a square deal, Miss Goldman? And she replied, oh, I suppose you've given me as square a deal as you could. We shouldn't expect from any person something beyond his capacity. Love it. Uh, <laughs> She, so she got in one last jab before yeah. being yeah. exiled from this country, essentially for the rest of her life. And what was the offense for which she got deported? She had spoken out very strongly against the draft at the time that the U.S. entered the First World War. There were many American radicals with many stripes, anarchists, socialists, and others, um, including some liberals who felt it was a mistake for the United States to enter this hugely destructive war with, with, in which Europe had been tearing itself apart for several years. And when the U.S. entered the war, spring of 1919, and then instituted the draft for the first time since the Civil War, a lot of people resisted it. And Emma Goldman was hauled into court, put up a uh, a very elegant defense when she was accused of being unpatriotic. And uh, she said, I don't have the text in front of me, but it went something like this. She told the court, um, my patriotism is like that of a love that a man has for a woman. Uh, He loves her intensely, but he is not blind to her faults. I think that's a nice definition of patriotism. Nonetheless, she was sent to prison for two years, and by the time she got out of prison at mid-1919, Hoover, who wanted to get rid of her, had discovered this business that she could be accused of not being a citizen and uh, pursued her through the courts and uh, got her into the prison on Ellis Island, from which she was then expelled from the country. And she was... She uh, never came back to America, I believe. That deport- uh, she was allowed to make one short visit of several weeks uh, mm-hmm. many years later, but that was it. She essentially spent the rest of her life uh, in Europe and for a time in Canada. And not everybody's heard of Emma Goldman. I would encourage anybody who has the slightest interest to read up about her. She's got an autobiography, just an amazing person. You talk about early feminists. Oh, yeah, she was there. Emma Goldman. We're talking uh, with uh, the author Adam Hochschild about uh, an article he's written that uh, you know looks back a hundred years when America tried to deport its radicals, which was in the New Yorker, and uh, the echoes today are just astounding. Really, absolutely amazing. The fear, the uh, prejudice against uh, certain people, it, it's all there. And there was talk of actually deporting native-born Americans as well. I mean, there are lots of uh, native-born uh, Americans today whose parents 
may have come here illegally. What, what would be the reason for deporting native-born Americans? Well, this was part of the anti-radical hysteria because, uh, you know, for people who were upset by the vision of a, of a more radical future that these folks were trying to put forth, um, some of it could be blamed on foreigners, uh, you know, Jewish immigrants, Italian immigrants, or whatever. But there were a lot of radicals who were native-born Americans, you know, people like Eugene Debs and Big Bill Haywood of the IWW and uh, many, many others. And uh, so one plan was, was put forth, uh, and there was a senator, actually, who, who voiced this idea, is, um, well, we could deport them to, because you couldn't send them back to their countries of birth because right. they were born here. We could deport them to the island of Guam, which the United States had taken from Spain in the uh, Spanish-American War. Uh, another thing that was in the air was an idea that is being floated by many anti-immigrant types today of eliminating birthright citizenship. Yes, yes. Uh, and there was something called the Anti-Alien League, which uh, put forth that idea. They were based on the West Coast and were particularly alarmed at immigration from Asia. So they put forth an idea that, uh, essentially, although it wasn't said in these words, uh, only white Americans would have birthright citizenship. And <clears throat> people born here of you know, parents from Asia would have to go back to the places they came from, their parents came from. Now, President Trump, I mean, you talk about the, the birthright uh, citizenship, and I believe that's the 14th Amendment. I'm not certain of that. You would probably know. Trump, Trump has called for ending that right of citizenship for all people born in America. Uh, many on the right call them anchor babies, people only having kids just to be able to stay in America. And uh, that goes back to the Anti-Alien League. So they proposed actually a constitutional amendment? What was that? Uh, well, the amendment that was proposed was introduced by the Anti-Alien League, proposed called for a constitutional amendment, quote, to restrict citizenship by birth within the United States to the children of parents who are of a race which is eligible for citizenship, unquote, a fancy way of saying white people. <laughs> and uh, Senator Wesley Jones of Washington State promised to introduce uh, such, a, such an amendment. Um, happily, it didn't go anywhere. Yeah. But, you know, those ideas are still floating around today. Right. And one of the people who was on that tugboat ride, as I mentioned, Albert Johnson, the congressman also from Washington State, was the chief author of the 1924 immigration bill, which dramatically restricted uh, immigration to the United States and did so in a very notably racist way. What people were worried about, as I said earlier at that time, the establishment types were worried about, was not immigration from south of the border, which is the worry today, but rather immigration from places like Italy, Russia, Eastern Europe, i.e. Catholics and Jews and Slavs. So there were quotas for different countries established under the 1924 Act, but the quotas were based on the proportion of the population that had of the American population that had its origin in those countries as of 1890, which was a time when the U.S. still was overwhelmingly 
Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Uh, And the quotas were very small. So this was the law which made it impossible for untold numbers of people fleeing the Holocaust uh, 20 years later to find uh, refuge uh, in the United States. And I have relatives, and a lot of other Americans have relatives who ended up uh, dying in the, the concentration camps or death camps in Europe as a result of not being able to come here then. Yes, there's there's a lot of that. Now, whatever happened to that 1924 bill? I have to assume it's not still in effect. No, it was finally undone in 1965, I believe. Uh, and... Um, I couldn't tell you the exact sure. content of the 1965 bill, but there has been a lot of immigration since then. Now, one of the uh, frightening things uh, to the power elite was a group that was not really very big, but it scared the uh, heck out of them, the IWW, the Wobblies, uh, caught the public attention. And Catching the public attention is what often sways policymakers. Please tell us about the Justice Department's actions relative to the IWW, the Wobblies, and and, why they were seen as as such a threat. Well, this was the, the, the group, the Industrial Workers of the World, which started off with a bang in 1925. Uh, it was never that big. Uh, <clears throat> the estimates by people who've studied it closely are, are that even at its maximum, it never had more than about 100,000 members in this country, and <clears throat> most of its existence, it had probably 25,000 or so. But uh, they were good organizers. Uh, They were colorful, they had a flair for drama, and uh, they had great music. And uh, there's some wonderful wobbly songs which you should play on your your program here. Uh, Every office, uh, every wobbly office uh, had a piano, and uh, there was something called the Little Red Songbook. Uh, And they preached a... uh, a version of radicalism which said that there should be one big union yes. to which all workers should belong, ah. and they welcomed everybody, regardless of color, creed, yes. or gender. Uh, there were early wobbly organizers like Elizabeth Gurley Flynn uh, who were women. Mm. This was very unusual at that oh, time in the yeah. labor movement or anywhere else. Um, they had some notable successes. One of the most dramatic and, and conspicuous was in, uh, I believe it was 1912, they organized a strike of uh, hotel and restaurant waiters in New York City. And knowing it would get the most publicity, they started Uh with the high-end restaurants like Delmonico's, the uh, Luncheon Club of the New York Stock Exchange, the Waldorf Astoria, and Wobbly Organizer, went into the restaurant just as people had ordered their meal and were waiting <laughs> for it to come, come, blew a whistle, and all the waiters walked out. Oh, my. Uh, and, of course, this put them on the front page of the paper and of the, all the newspapers and got an immense amount of attention. They didn't win huge gains by it, but at one point there were 800 waiters who were blocking Fifth Avenue in New York City, and the police had to fire shots in the air wow. to disperse the, the crowd. So these kinds of things really jarred the establishment. Probably the biggest wobbly victory was 
the so-called bread and roses strike in Lawrence, Massachusetts of clothing mill workers, uh, where uh, tens of thousands of them walked out. People were killed by state militia sent in to suppress the strike, and they won some significant gains. And again, it was done in a dramatic way that made the rest of the country aware of this. For example, from that strike, uh, uh, striking workers there who were, you know, many of them immigrants, uh, spoke many different languages, when things began to get violent and when they were running out of food, many of them sent their children to be sheltered by sympathizers in other cities. So you had, for example, a trainload of children from Lawrence, Massachusetts, who came to New York City, where people had volunteered to take them in. The chaperones, supervisors on the train, incidentally, included Margaret Sanger, the birth control pioneer. Mm. And then sympathizers in New York took them in. And, you know, they were greeted with great fanfare when they came to New York City. Trainloads went to other cities as well. So the Wobblies had a tremendous flair for publicity and drama. And this, I think, terrified the government out of all (laughs) proportion to their size. Um, Once the U.S. entered the First World War in the spring of 1917, the government could use the war as as an excuse to suppress any strike, because you can claim that almost anything is, you know, necessary good for the, the, the war effort. Um, so they did this ruthlessly, and then beyond that, in the fall of 1917, they went after the organization itself, uh, staged raids on every IWW office in the country, and there were, I believe, four dozen of them. They arrested more than 100 key wobblies, brought them in closed boxcars to Chicago, and put them on trial, a trial that lasted four months in the uh, uh, spring and summer of 1918. And all the, uh, more than 100 uh, Wobblies were all found guilty on all counts by a jury that deliberated 55 minutes. Mm. The judge passed out a total of more than 800 years of prison time. Wow. And, you know, one big union, uh, just, you know, during the First World War, it was you know, working class men fighting against working class men. And after a while, they started on both sides thinking, hey, wait a minute, what do I have against my fellow working class uh, person across the way? And so I can imagine that would have been a little bit uh, annoying to the government that was trying to make sure that everybody, everybody supported the war over there. And there is, I don't know if you have access to this, I hope you do, Uh, there was a quote in your article disparaging certain countries made by the allegedly liberal Woodrow Wilson 10 years before he became president. That sounds a lot like... I'll read that to you. Yes, please do. Thank you. Um, Yeah, this was something that Wilson wrote in 1902 when he was a professor at Princeton, Uh, about to become president of the university, and wrote a history of the United States, uh, and uh, wrote the following. Uh, Throughout the 19th century, men of the sturdy stocks of the north of Europe, remember we were just talking about that, had made up the main strain of foreign blood, which was every year added to the vital working force of the country. But now, 
there came multitudes of men of the lowest class from the south of Italy, and men of the meaner sort out of Hungary and Poland, men out of the ranks where there was neither skill nor energy nor any initiative of quick intelligence. Hmm. And they came in numbers which increased from year to year, as if the countries of the south of Europe were disburdening themselves of the more sordid and hapless elements of their population. Well, Does you know, that sound familiar? today, where, yeah. where Trump says to the Prime Minister of Norway, we wouldn't have a problem with immigrants if they were all people who looked like you. You know, it's the same damn thing. It just repeated 100 years later. Absolutely. Just amazing how clear it is that, uh, you know, and Trump had these, and I guess I can say it on the radio because the president said it, you know, he has these, I still feel funny, shithole countries, which are mainly in Africa, but my ancestors were among those who are similarly similarly seen as undesirables, Eastern European Jews. Who, in addition to Eastern European Jews, were lumped into that category of undesirables? What united these undesirables? And in, in what ways were these, quote, immigrant swarms pictured as being a threat to national security? I mean, well, that could be now as well as then. Besides the Jews, it was Italians, uh, Sicilians, Greeks and Slavs, you know, Poles. Uh, sure. Poles are probably the largest Slavic group that uh, came to this country, and and there were some ethnic Russians who came from Russia but were not Jewish. the 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 biggest push, though, was really against the Jews because anti-Semitism had been a pretty well-established thing here even before the U.S. entered this period of of uh, uh, heavy Jewish immigration. The thing that really keyed that off was in 1881, <clears throat> the Tsar of Russia, Alexander II, was assassinated. And Alexander had been the reformer Tsar, the guy who freed the serfs. And he was by no means a human rights activist, but he was notably less anti-Semitic than many of his predecessors. And as soon as he was killed, um, the Jews of Russia knew that they would be blamed for his assassination, which indeed there were. There was only one Jewish member of the radical group that killed him. But a series of pogroms began that lasted really on and off for about 25 years. And that was what spurred the immense exodus of Russian Jews out of Russia that began then and continued for some years, which uh, so many people in this country uh, have their ancestry in. And, you know, there was an election coming up in 1920, you know, 1919, the election was coming up. And back then, I mean, I know right now there are people, Trump's base, who, you know, let's face it, love to get those others out of their country. So you write that the tenor of the deportation frenzy was heightened by the upcoming 1920 presidential election. Several of those hoping to succeed Wilson saw great potential in promising to deport troublemakers. Aside from A. Mitchell Palmer, who we'll spend time on in a minute, who were who some of these people and how did they fare who wanted to carry on this uh, anti-immigrant deportation stuff? Well, Palmer, the attorney general, had his eye on the Democratic nomination. And then there were several people who had their eyes on the Republican nomination. One was uh, Nicholas Murray Butler, who was the president of Columbia University in New York, uh, <clears throat> a longtime uh, fixture in the 
you know, Anglo-Protestant establishment, um, who thundered about deporting people. Another was Senator Miles, I think was his first name, Poindexter of Washington State, uh, another big uh, anti-immigrant uh, uh, crusader. Interesting, a lot of the strong anti-immigrant voices at that point came from the Northwest. Uh, the Wobblies were strong there. They were worried about Asian immigration there. Mm. Uh, a third person with his eye on the uh, uh, Republican nomination who also uh, trumpeted away about deportation was Major General Leonard Wood, who had been a hero of the Indian Wars. He actually won the Congressional Medal of Honor for capturing Geronimo. Mm. Uh, Then he had fought beside Theodore Roosevelt as a rough rider in the Spanish-American War. And in 1919, some rivals had elbowed him aside, and he did not get a command in Europe during the First World War. But in 1919, he was in charge of... Uh, troops who were stationed in the American Midwest who were busy putting down strikes uh, during this immense uh, labor upheavals. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he actually put Gary, Indiana under martial law at one point. Uh, He was a big buddy of Theodore Roosevelt who encouraged him to go into politics, and he had his, his aim on the Republican nomination. But he uh, obviously the well we we know that uh, Warren Harding got him. We'll talk about him a little later. So we mentioned A. Mitchell Palmer. Uh, every school kid in America should know about him. But I bet if you took a hundred of them, you'll find a hundred that don't. Uh, who was this A. Mitchell Palmer? It seems he had a very heavy impact on the matters of deportations. There were agent provocateur and denial of justice. A. Mitchell Palmer. Tell us about okay. him. He was a Pennsylvania Quaker uh, lawyer, uh, and he actually took his Quaker faith uh, quite seriously in the early part of his life and turned down the position of Secretary of War, which Woodrow Wilson offered him in 1912 when Wilson was first elected president. Um, Palmer was a member of Congress at that time and had been instrumental in, in, William, in Wilson's getting the nomination. Uh, a bit later on, he served in the government as alien property custodian, which meant that once the U.S. entered the First World War, anything owned by German citizens in the United States was, or Austro-Hungarian citizens, was considered alien property and could be confiscated. Whoa. And it was on a huge scale. Jeez. And uh, then sold to American buyers, often at cut-rate prices. Um, Then in 1919, Palmer became Attorney General under Woodrow Wilson. Uh, An experience in the middle of that year greatly jarred him. Uh, His house was one of a number of targets around the country of anarchist bombers. Uh, As it happened, uh, uh, and there there were... Oh, eight or nine of these bombings around the country, and several dozen bombs that got stopped in the mail were mail bombs before they could be delivered. But one of these bombings was of Palmer's own house, where the bomber, uh, an Italian-born uh, anarchist, actually mistakenly blew himself up before he could get uh, inside the house. So the house was damaged, the bomber was killed, Palmer and his wife and daughter escaped, but he understandably found it upsetting that uh, somebody had come that close uh, to killing him. And I think this was something that made him determined to 
ruthlessly go after radicals of all stripes. And of course, he had his young aide, J. Edgar Hoover, uh, urging him on. And he appointed Hoover head of the radical division of the Justice Department, uh, where Hoover promptly uh, began gathering uh, all the information he could from all over the country about different radicals and what groups they belonged to and what the connections were between them. Uh, Hoover was a great fan of the great information management technology of the day, which was file cards. And within a couple of years, he'd have close to half a million file cards on American radicals and their organizations. But the key things that that happened were later that year, uh, actually November 7th, 1919, which was very pointedly the second anniversary of the Bolshevik coup in Russia, they staged the first of two big raids. There was another one that followed in January of 1920. And the best estimate is that between these two raids and a couple of smaller ones, uh, something like 10,000 American radicals were seized uh, in dozens of cities around the country. And these were people that Palmer and Hoover had targeted for deportation. So in other words, it was what we were talking about earlier. Radicals of one sort or another, who were not American citizens and could therefore be deported. Um, so this was this was a, a ruthless sweep, unlike anything quite, at least on that scale, that the United States had seen before, where you know dozens of uh, federal agents, often supported by local p- police, would swarm into a you know an office of a a socialist or anarchist group of some sort, arrest everybody in in sight, often rough them up at the same time, beat them, throw them downstairs or whatever, and then cart them off to prison and prepare deportation proceedings. Now, is that... I, I, is that the Palmer raids we're talking about? Or, or yeah, that, they're called the Palmer raids. I think they should really be called the Hoover raids ah, because yeah. it was this 24-year-old J. Edgar Hoover who really did the planning and who actually personally went along on one of the raids himself. And and there were also agents provocateur. There were um, the the Justice Department had a very vigorous program of inserting undercover agents into radical organizations, which was relatively easy to do. The Wobblies, for instance, made such a thing out of welcoming anybody of any ethnicity or anybody who could say they'd belong to a union somewhere else or in their home country in Europe or whatever, that it was very easy to infiltrate. And actually, there was a Justice Department uh, agent provocateur who got himself elected head of the Wobbly branch in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And the government, uh, in order to keep his credibility as a Wobbly, actually arrested him a couple of times uh, so that he would be, you know, (laughs) keep his credibility in the eyes of his his fellow Wobblies. And some of these types actually did things that uh, helped, uh, well, well, there was another type of agent provocateur also who were private detectives. This was a huge industry in the United States at that time. The three biggest private detective agencies employed 135,000 people. These were folks who were hired by industry uh, that wanted to prevent their labor from getting organized. Armed thugs, basically. These 
private detectives knew that it was to their interest and to their you know benefit in getting hired to yeah. keep the pot boiling <laughs> and so some of them you know planted bombs and oh, set off explosions goodness. and things themselves and you know there's a tradition of the left dividing up amongst itself i mean it's a long sad tradition actually and you know among the various different socialists and anarchists not all the anarchists were for bombing certainly uh but what what could at what could have been done what would have been a better solution i mean no you know a whole bunch of bombings uh, you got to do something about that you know threatening you people's lives what would have been a better more just solution do you think well, you're right about that, Bert. You can't have people going and setting off explosions that are aimed at, at, at killing people. No. <laughs> I think good police work, you know, uh, look for clues. Uh, you know, who planted that bomb? Are there fingerprints? Are there clues? Uh, and you've got a perfect right to go and arrest the guy who did it. And it usually is a guy. I don't think there were any women anarchist bombers. But good police work is hard. It's much easier to sort of have a purge of all radicals in general. And, you know, if you're running for president or something, uh, that's going to get you a lot more attention than saying we're investigating this crime and it may take weeks or months before we solve it. And again, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're speaking with author Adam Hochschild about uh, an article uh, when America tried to deport its radicals from the New Yorker, and the echoes are amazing to today's uh, anti-immigrant stuff uh, promoted by Trump. And, uh, you know, fear of the other is, of course, used very effectively by President Trump when it comes to immigration policy. Trump has a dependable promoter in the head of the Justice Department, Attorney General Bill Barr. From your article, it seems that the Justice Department 100 years ago also actively actively promoted a political agenda of fear. Tell us about the press releases the Justice Department used to promote anti-immigrant sentiment. What, what fears did they promote, and how did they do well, it? Let me, let me read you a couple of, of those. Please. Thank you. These uh, fiery press releases from the Justice Department came... Uh, mostly in the early months of 1920, when in the Palmer raids that we were just talking about, uh, Attorney General Palmer and Hoover had had some 10,000 radicals arrested. And this created quite a stir. And Palmer was also trying to keep the pot boiling for uh, getting steam for his uh, running for president. And one of the things he was predicting was that on May 1st, 1920, there would be a nationwide communist takeover. Uh, and so he, the Justice Department press office issued a series of releases. One of them was headed, Warns Nation of Red Peril. U.S. Department of Justice urges Americans to guard against Bolshevik menace. And then they did things like, of these 10,000 people arrested in the Palmer raids, Many of these folks were kept in prison for days. They didn't have a chance to, to, to and, and makeshift prison because they couldn't make that much space so quickly. Makeshift prison, they didn't have a chance to wash or shave, and then, and then they would photograph them, looking very disheveled, and issue these photographs to the press under headings, you know, like, men like these want to rule you. So 
Uh, and then Palmer also himself wrote a magazine article at this time uh, claiming that the communism, quote, was eating its way into the homes of the American workmen. Its sharp tongues of revolutionary heat were licking the altars of the churches, leaping into the belfry of the school bell, crawling into the sacred corners of American homes, seeking to replace marriage vows with libertine laws. So this was a torrent of stuff that, you know, is not unlike the torrent of wild claims we get on Twitter from the White House. Uh-huh. From the president himself. Who'd have thunk it? Amazing how little we may have learned. And, uh, you know, wouldn't it be nice if history books actually, you know, told real American history and not just uh, official myth that we are, uh, you know, the American exception in the world? But, uh there's a lot of stuff that we really need to learn from to yeah. become a better country, like uh, Emma Goldman said. And we're talking about a lot of villains here, but there are some heroes, somebody I had never heard of, and I'm glad I have from this article that you wrote. You know, heroes often come from surprising places. A roadblock appeared to the Justice Department's, uh, you know, clampdown on immigrants. Louis F. Post. Tell listeners about who he was and what he did. How did he invoke the Constitution to protect the rights of the immigrants who had uh, been arrested? Lewis F. Well, Post. Here was the, the situation. Uh, Attorney General Palmer and his sidekick, J. Edgar Hoover, had these roughly 10,000 people arrested. And they had prepared deportation cases against the great majority of them, against about two-thirds of them. Uh, radicals who were not American citizens and thereby could be deported. But there was a legal wrinkle, which was that deportations were controlled by the Immigration Bureau, and that fell under the Department of Labor. The Secretary of Labor, and we're now talking the early months of 1920, the Secretary of Labor was on sick leave. The second-ranking official in the department, who would normally have taken over from, from him, resigned suddenly to uh, run for Congress. And so the third-ranking person in the department, the assistant secretary of labor, suddenly became acting secretary of labor. And his name was Louis F. Post. Uh, he was 70 years old. In photographs, he bears a surprising resemblance to uh, Leon Trotsky. Uh, you know, wire rimmed glasses, a thick head of black hair, uh, Van Dyke beard. Uh-huh. Uh, and Post was a good guy. He had been a progressive journalist, uh, not a socialist or communist, but a strong progressive. Uh, he'd known Emma Goldman personally, she'd been a dinner guest in his home. Uh, and all his life, he'd been a crusader for good causes, a staunch anti racist, uh, wow. something that I think was. Pretty rare. Planted in him when, after the Civil War, he was part of the Reconstruction effort in the South, and he saw how active the Ku Klux Klan became after the Civil War, and how they sometimes got pardoned when they were convicted. Mm. Uh, he, he was, you know, part of the crusade for creating a Labor Day. Uh, he published a magazine in Chicago where he was from, uh, where where he he lived. He was from New Jersey originally, uh, that, uh, you know, criticized corporations and backed reforms that would uh, help the workers. Uh, and he was a single taxer. The single tax movement was very strong at that time. Uh, the idea that there should be 
the only thing that should be taxed should be land, and Ooh. that would put a pinch on speculators and allow you know smallholders to work the land to their own profit and not benefit corporations that bought up uh, large quantities of it and held it. Um, so when he had the chance to join the new uh, infant then Labor Department in 1912, when Wilson got elected, he took it and was very glad to have it because Wilson stood for many progressive things at that time. And even though I think he went a very different direction, there were a lot of young idealists who came into the government then. Post was not so young at that point. He was in his 60s. So here he is, acting Secretary of Labor, and he was also somebody with a very strong belief in the rights of immigrants and in unrestricted immigration. Uh, so he had the authority to rule on these deportations, and he went through them. He found that a lot of the deep, he was also been trained as a lawyer, which was helpful. He found that a lot of the Deportation cases had been prepared on the basis of faulty warrants. Uh, there were legal errors. A high bail had been set for a number of these prisoners. For some, he eliminated bail. For some, he reduced the bail. And all told, he put so many legal obstacles in the way of what Palmer and Hoover were trying to do with these mass deportations that they were only able to deport uh, less than 10% of the people they had hoped. Mm -hmm. Uh, to deport. They were, of course, furious. And Palmer and uh, Post became one of the first, although by no means the last, uh, victim of a smear campaign yeah. by Hoover, who gathered a thick file of him, shared it with members of Congress, tried to orchestrate Congress impeaching him, yeah. uh, also tried to organize the American Legion to put pressure on the Wilson administration to fire him. Neither of those worked. And one of the reasons why those efforts fell apart was that the frenzy about deportation and about, you know, the fear that the Russian Revolution was going to spread to the United States uh, basically petered out by mid-1920. Mm. I had mentioned uh, earlier that, that uh, Attorney General Palmer predicted that there would be a nationwide communist uprising on May Day, 1920. May Day came, uh, police departments were put on alert, the city of Chicago arrested more than 300 radicals and put them in preventive detention for the day, and nothing happened. <laughs> and that was one thing that sort of uh, took the wind out of the sails uh, of uh, the push for, for deportation and so on. Uh, and I think it killed Palmer's uh, presidential hopes. Uh, another thing that happened was that, and if you read the history books, you'll you'll see many references to this. There was something called the the Twelve Lawyer Report, which was a long, excoriating uh, criticism of the Justice Department's proceedings in these attempts to deport these people. Uh, that was signed by 12 distinguished lawyers, law mm. school deans, law school professors, and so on, including one future Supreme Court justice, Felix Frankfurter. All right. What the historians don't tell you is that basically this thing was orchestrated by Louis F. Post and his friends. <laughs> uh, one of the two key people uh, who 
had a hand in putting it together was a, a fellow single taxer, a friend of Post. The other was Post's own lawyer. And then they rounded up the 12 people to sign it. Uh, so he was quite a guy, uh, Post. And and so rare to find somebody who's a strong progressive, who is also a master of bureaucratic maneuvering. Oh, boy, that is rare. And it does seem that, you know, certain things have, you know, they, it's like a play. They have a climax and then they kind of fade. And it certainly happened with the, the, the reign of terror under uh, Joseph McCarthy. After a while, eh, it kind of faded. You know, and the power of public opinion really does matter a lot. And Trump knows it. Everybody knows it. Uh, so what did uh, Representative George Huddleston of Alabama, of all places, say about the sweep against the so-called radicals? It's a great quote. It's yeah, it's a wonderful quote. He quoted an unnamed critic. I have to do some searching and figure out who it was, who said, most of these radicals arrested probably didn't know the difference between Bolshevism and rheumatism. I love it. That, and I think, I, I wonder if that got much publicity at the time, because I think people could, could get that. You know, the, the level of uh, sophistication, shall we say, is not great among so many Americans. They don't know the that's that's true. You know, it's funny. It's hard to tell, really. There were no public opinion polls no, at, that, at that moment. Um, when we look at the written record, which is mostly what uh, those of us who write about history have to do, sure. uh, you see, you know, there were things like, you know, six, eight, ten daily newspapers in a place like New York. Yeah. Um, did most people read them? I don't know. Well, and, of course, the, you know, the press was pretty supine then and, yeah. and went along with, um, you know, the hysteria. Uh, there was not a lot of good investigative reporting. Uh, there was not, you know, there were not a lot of people trying to in, journalistically poke holes mm. in this hysteria mongering at the time, unfortunately. Well, Warren Harding followed uh, the sort of progressive uh, uh, Woodrow Wilson. Warren Harding was, of course, a Republican. What did he say about the excesses of the Palmer uh, Hoover Justice Department? Well, he um, was nominated just at the point when uh, the climate of opinion in the country had really uh, changed from the period of intense hysteria around the Palmer raids. You know, the May 1st had happened. There had not been this communist uprising that Palmer had predicted. In fact, nothing happened. So uh, Harding, I think, saw correctly that you know, people were tired of this frenzy. They were tired of all oh, the intense mobilization of the First World War. And so he campaigned on this promise of a return to normalcy. Uh, and he won. Uh, I think he, he read the public mood and he said quite openly, you know, too much has been made of the threat of Bolshevism. He was a very undistinguished and president and, uh, you know, ensnared in a corruption scandal. Uh, but he did, under pressure, um, release almost all of these radicals who had been sent to prison, wow. uh, like the Wobblies who'd been rounded up uh, during the war. And one of them, Eugene Debs, the socialist leader who had been uh, was in a federal prison for his speaking out against the First World War, Harding not only sprang from prison, but invited him to visit the White House on his way home. Amazing. 
Amazing. You never know. Democrats, Republicans, well, you know, Democrats used to be the party of racism, the Southern Democrats, but parties do change. And we just got a couple of minutes left. I wanted to ask, when Trump at first tried to close the door to Muslims from around the world, the courts reined it in. Since then, the right-wingers in the U.S. Senate have focused on filling federal judgeships across the country. Do you think public opinion, uh, I always like to have some degree of optimism, I don't know, do you think public opinion has come around far enough so that it might be harder to crack down on immigrants as a class of people? How far have Americans come, do you think, after the ugly deportations and the raids? You know, I think the American public is very divided on this. Um, I think probably the majority of people sympathize with the the, the DACA people, the Dreamers, the the uh, people who came to the United States as as children usually, and now, but you know, didn't weren't officially able to become citizens, and now they're in their twenties, thirties. Some of them serve in the military. Uh, and there's a prospect that large numbers of them could be deported, and the Supreme oh, Court is is uh, supposed to rule on this oh soon. Boy. And the articles yes. I've read are not optimistic that the court is going to yeah. allow those folks to stay here. And I think that's such a terrible tragedy, because, yeah. you know, I've had some of those folks as my pieces. students. You know, these are people who have been in the United States, some of them since they were two, three, four years old. Their families were eager to assimilate. They stopped speaking the language of the home country. Yeah. And now, you know, 30, 40 yeah. years later, is they face a prospect of being sent back to Mexico or El Salvador. Places they've never been. Know, yeah. Places where they've never been in some cases and have you know, no family ties and no longer speak the language. Yeah, it's, it's really... Uh, Hopefully we can uh, return to normalcy, as it were. There's always heroes and villains. Adam Hochschild, thanks so much for being with us. And just to make sure people know how to spell your last name, H-O-C-H-S-C-H-I-L-D. Any one of his books, highly recommend. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much, and uh, let's hope we can have some uh, heroes as we go forth. Good. You're so right about that, Bert. Thank <laughs> you very much for the chance to be with you. Thank you. Take care.